Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Sometimes words just aren't enough. And I say this as a writer for whom some words are a delicious snack. But when an idea is new, powerful, subtle, freaky, beyond what we've grokked before, language can create a distance. So we need a direct line into the stupendous zone of our brains. For that, we need nonverbal art, like music. Sam Guarnaccia is a classical guitarist and composer who's always been fascinated with both the science and the experience of how the earth works. The whole idea of deep time, of what it means to be part of an evolving universe, has inspired Sam to write a major musical work, the Emergent Universe Oratorio. If you're not familiar with oratorios, you probably actually are. It's a big work with orchestra, chorus, and soloists. It's usually about religious themes like Handel's Messiah, Bach's B minor Mass, or his Passions of St. John and St. Matthew, the Requiems of Mozart, Brahms, Verdi, Fauré, you get the picture. Lots of sin and judgment and crucifixion with the occasional hallelujah chorus thrown in. And I love this music, even though it's kind of a bummer. But Sam Guarnaccia's lush oratorio sings about the origins of stars and trees and even cell membranes and how they influence identity. And it sings about us as something other than dyed-in-the-wool sinners. Sam Guarnaccia's Emergent Universe Oratorio will have a major premiere in Cleveland in June 2017. You can learn more about that in the show notes. In this conversation, Sam and I talk about his new work, what an emergent universe means, reclaiming the power held for so long by religion, and how we're still in the Big Bang just a little later. All of the music in this episode is from the Emergent Universe Oratorio. Just a reminder that if you subscribe to the Big Chew podcast during Vermont's 2017 mud season, which drives me crazy until May 31st, you'll be eligible to win a free weekend in the tiny house on our farm when it's not mud season. It's a really cool tiny house, and if you win it, you can also give that weekend as a gift if you want. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and you'll see buttons to subscribe. And you'll get a new episode every two weeks and not much more because I'm not going to bug you. Here's my conversation with Sam Gornaccia. the first composer I've heard who has done a major piece on the universe story, on the epic of evolution. Mm. Are there others that you know of? I, 
I'm not aware of other composers who have, who have done a, a major piece, or for that matter, a minor piece on the story, although I, I know there are individual pieces here and there that, uh, that touch on parts of it. I don't think there certainly isn't a comprehensive one that, that I'm that I'm aware of, I, and I'm not aware of everything. So, but certainly I don't think if there is that it has the depth of connection to the scientific deep time, aesthetically um, connected, mm -hmm. grounded. And and in recognition of the of the deep science, the from from the quantum world to the to the macro cosmic world, there there's nothing that I'm familiar with in in music that treats that right that that story. And it's not an easy thing to do because it's so hard to connect to these you know these enormous time scales and and enormous space and energy scales. You know, David Bohm says in, in, a, in, a, in a cubic centimeter of what looks like empty space between you and me, there's enough energy to, to, to uh, uh, supply energy for the earth for, for centuries. Wow. You know, and the, a, a thousand uh, Hiroshima bombs, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's just... And where's that, where's space that energy? Empty. Space is not empty. Where's that energy seated or... Well, or is it not? Is it just moving? Where, yeah, the the where and the when of things is difficult because time and space <laughs> are a continuum. Right. So, we need a new language for a lot of things, including this conversation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you were saying that you had more of a science background than a composition background. Oh, well, it's not. It wasn't particularly formal. It was more a fascination and a passion as a as a young child and a teenager. Um, I was more attracted to to the curiosity about how things worked mm -hmm. in the world than I was about the aesthetics. I didn't I I loved Music. I heard music. My parents played classical music. My father grew up with opera, so he used to love to sing in the car and that sort of thing. But I, I didn't, I didn't get any lessons or anything, or have any any early uh, impetus toward what I ended up doing later with my life, which mm -hmm. was ending up being a classical guitarist, and then through a series of other eventualities in my life uh, ending up now in the last few years writing music and thinking about music all my life but um, but no and then and the science fascination passion is, has never departed from those early years I'd go to the river Otter Creek mm -hmm. grew up right down the river left I think I told you before less than half a mile from here mm -hmm. by the covered bridge by the covered bridge I'd yeah. go down by the water I had a little microscope that my grandmother maybe gave me a like a science set. Yeah, you yeah, know, from the back of a Boys Life magazine or something. But <laughs> you could see, you know, you could look at hair and you could look at leaves and you could look at pond water, see the incredible, you know, rotifers and and uh, paramecium and other things swimming around in there that were, of course, not visible to the naked eye. And those those things were fascinating. Things growing, birds flying in the air, 
I wanted to be a bird so badly. You know, these, and how did it work? And there was, so it's always been a mixture of awe and wonder and also wanting to know the details. Let's go back to when you first started learning about this universe story. So how did that come about? Well, the backstory to anyone learning about the universe story who is in my generation, you might say, I grew up understanding the universe as static, as we didn't know it was expanding, especially accelerating expansion. Back when I was having my grade school, high school science classes, and uh, I suppose even if we had known, we wouldn't have been understanding that in the in the absolutely <laughs> magical, mystical way that that and mysterious. The mystery of it was was not there. Only the size was mysterious. Yeah, we didn't we didn't know what we know now in terms of um, either either the microcosmic. I mean, some of the some of the recent discoveries in, in subatomic physics, not to mention string theory and all of those kinds of things, are, were, were not in the picture in the 50s and 60s. Um, and cosmic, you know, CMBR, cosmic microwave background radiation, wasn't detected until the late 60s, I think. Was Penzias that in Wilson. New Jersey? Yeah. Yes, New yeah, Jersey. New Jersey. So the whole, the Big Bang wasn't even, we were, your choice was it's either a reciprocating universe, expanding, maybe contracting back and then exploding uh-huh. out again, or it was static. And humans, nobody ever talked about us being an intimate part of it. We were somehow separate from the rest of life so different from the rest of, of the biosphere. And there was no no understanding that I remember of uh, of that sequence of the geosphere being a place upon which the biosphere could develop and that it took two billion years for for prokaryotes to invent a nucleus. And when the nucleus happened, it was like almost not instantaneous, but very soon after that, the the, the quantum leap of the of the complexity of a nucleated cell compared to a non-nucleated cell is I mean, that's one of the big turning points. Right. That is something that Thomas Berry and and, and uh, Teilhard de Chardin would say, that's better than Christmas and Easter. That's worth celebrating. Photosynthesis yeah. again. The, those are the big turning points that we need to understand, know about, and to recognize that we, our ability to sit here and, and muse about those things and wonder about those things, is entirely dependent upon all of that process. I I also feel really lucky. I'm I haven't composed for that long. Oh but really? I've been thinking about it for a long time. Uh huh. And and. I've kind of fallen into these very deep waters because because of my fascination and interest in everything else. And as it turns out, how, how fortunate for me because there is nothing else but everything else. It's all one thing, really. Right. Brian Swim says, uh, and Thomas Berry in the universe story, that, that, that it's 
we're in the same event. We're in the Big Bang. It's just a bit later, 13.8 billion years, roughly, we think, uh, later. But it's still the same cosmogenesis. And this, this, is, this is new information. That's what makes it a new story. We often run across people who say, oh, no, no we got to go back to the indigenous outlook, which, of course, would be very healthy to have some of that. But that is, that is not a new story. That's an old, that's a, another way, that's a, another meme, you might say, if you're familiar with spiral dynamics. Yep. You know? uh, that's, a, that's another, that's a language for a different meme of understanding the, the you know, this super connected wholeness in which, and becoming the, you know, the living universe. Dwayne Elgin is a source of, uh, of thinking about, about this unbroken don't, wholeness. Don't you think that with the indigenous people, a lot, uh, you know, and that's, of course, a huge category mm-hmm. that only a white girl like me could, right, right, could, right. could simplify, right. <laughs> which I don't mean to do, but there was more of a, a felt sense a felt sense yes, of the yeah. connectivity, truly, truly. where now we've come around kind of intellectually and yes, scientifically yes. to the connectivity right. that people who have lived in the same place for thousands of yeah. years and who have relationships yes. with plants and animals that are profound right. spiritual relationships, right. they have known this from a felt sense. That's right. And we, and we have the misfortune to have in our... First world mechanized, uh, commodified systems, and 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 now our, our nervous systems are almost geared to that with the internet and so forth. We have the misfortune of having to process that to include all of that in our new understanding. Whereas a child mm-hmm. uh, can go directly to that feeling place and that feeling relationship. With the earth, I can remember it myself very well. Lying on my back in the lawn right down here by the covered bridge, looking up at the trees, seeing a bird go over, becoming the bird. How old, how the old bird. were you? Five, six, yeah. seven, I guess. And you became the bird. And that feeling, and, and I can now, I would say that differently, knowing what I know now, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to incorporate uh, the the... You know the the quantum and the and the um, and the formative causation explanations, the 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 um, here the morphic, the morphic resonance, resonance yeah. uh, point of view of how how we are connected in memory and experience and feeling with with other systems, with other living energetic centers. So. You know, I had an experience when I was a little kid, and I think that's what little kids do. I remember it so clearly. I think I was about three in my little overalls. Yeah, I grew up on a farm Mm -hmm. in New Jersey. I remember lying on my back in the field and the buzzing around me. It was tall grass and wild strawberries. The wild strawberries and just the smell, just the ability to kind of reach out and partake of something in in the world that I felt so much a part of. And looking looking at the sky and you know this spring up in Wolcott we had wild strawberries like I have not seen in years. It was, it was like going back to that experience. Yeah, yeah. It was just incredible. So 
you had that kind of experience as a child and has that continued through your life? Because for some people it does. Yes, yeah, it has. Mm -hmm. It has, actually. And it, and it has progressed and or accumulated. I'm, I can still have that kind of, that kind of innocent, spontaneous experience of, of wholeness and oneness and uh, that, that isn't, that doesn't have the, the, um, the added depth of having sort of had an epiphany about the science behind mm -hmm. all of that, you know, it's just it's just another direct experience. That of course happens in music all the time. That's what well, that's what makes music so incredibly powerful, because it, it unfolds in time. It bypasses the intellect and and the, the rational mind, and all of the defenses that we have, and and, and the questions and fears and all of that, and it uh, it creates a pathway. That's why the oratorio. I mean, it's one of the reasons. That it's that it's important, and that the that the aesthetics, especially right. music, and in 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 reconnecting with on the other side of this great period of um, deconstructionism, of because you're analyzing something, and you cannot participate wholly in something that you're analyzing. C.S. Lewis said it best about a topic that we all love, which is sex. He said, "What have you got?" And I can't, this isn't a direct quote, but okay. it's close. You can't at the same time analyze and examine the experience and also be in the nuptial embrace. Yeah. You're either participating in it or it's going to go away. One of the great principles of, of the universe that of this new evolutionary uh, uh, understanding that we have of an evolving universe, which is very new, just in the last few decades, is that it is, it is a series of irreversible transformations. That's huge. So you can't unlearn your intellectual understanding of something. But, but, the, but most of us who get an education, we have to find a place to put all that knowledge mm -hmm. and all of that doubt and all of that that certainty that we had that we understand something because we can name all the parts and because somebody has made experiments on it and gathered data about it and so forth. Yeah, great. And where does that leave you? Uh, it leaves you probably the way it left, uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that whole generation of people and the people who wrote music in the 50s and 60s, it was awful. The scratch and sniff. Oh. <laughs> oh. But it was the only thing you could write, if you, especially if you were in academia. 12 It was the only really cool thing. So, and, and of course, painting too. And all of the yeah. arts went yeah. through that and there seemed to be emerging from that because it doesn't work. It's not real. It's not who we are. And your work is very melodic. Yeah. It's very melodic, evocative. It's the only oratorio I'm aware of that refers to slime molds. Um, 
Well, that was in the old libretto. Uh, the, oh, so, slime, so the slime molds slime are molds out? Slime out, but, but, oh. but, but the skinny shrew is in. The skinny shrew? It's a slime mold. I love slime, slime molds, yeah. especially since, mm -hmm. you know, when you you think, oh, slime molds, you know, lower form of life. They're fantastic. They communicate with each no, other. No, they're amazing. They... No, I, I agree. I agree. And if, boy, it would be, maybe, maybe they'll come back in. Maybe I'll put them back in. <laughs> Because they are, they are a remarkable uh, uh, example of cooperative, of these amazing emergent properties. And, and that word emergent, which I use for the oratorio, is, I mean, it's almost becoming a cliche now, unfortunately. It's, it's being used so much, but it's such an important word, and I think that the deeply understanding it is still far away from most people who use the word. So what is your understanding but, of, I mean, we're talking mm -hmm. about the story of the universe emerging and our emergence with it. So how would you describe well, emergence? Well, uh, the simplest thing is an emergent property is one that is not present at a lower level mm -hmm. of complexity. So, uh, and, the, and the simplest example I can think of is one that Fritzhoff Copper used, and that's a thermostat. There, there's a little bulb of mercury there's a contact, an electrical contact, and then there's the room temperature. And if you take, you know, if you take the individual parts of the thermostat individually, they're meaningless. You wouldn't even be able to know what they were if you found if you found this little, you know, this little spring lever with a. You wouldn't know what it was, and you might never be able to discover what it was. Mm -hmm. It's only it only functions in relationship at that next level of complexity, where the things are put in in relationship to each other, so that the air temperature makes this thing bend, and makes an electrical contact. And when the temperature drops a little bit, and that raises the temperature in the room, and then when when it gets too hot, it relaxes and breaks the contact mm -hmm. so that the furnace turns off. That's that's a cybernetic system, closed loop system. And that's so that property of controlling the temperature in a room is an emergent property. That's interesting. Of of this lower level yeah. of bits of metal and a mercury bulb and electrical wires, okay? But it's the way you put them together. Then they become something else. Mm -hmm. And that's What's happened in, in the universe, it started with, you know, elementary particles and energy. And the, uh, Brian Swim, again, says it best. He says, over the course of time, well, you've heard this quote then. Yeah? Well, go there, ahead. there are a couple. Over the course of 14 billion years, hydrogen transformed itself into butterflies, giraffes, and the music of Mozart. Or over the course of four and a half billion years, which is, you know, life on Earth, you know, the same thing. Rocks transform themselves into opera and everything else, the, you and me and so forth. So, uh, and that, that all happens by a, a, a process of emergence. Elements come together, they interact, they develop a relationship, and something completely unpredictable emerges. It is impossible to predict. So that's that's part of chaos theory and complexity theory.
have language that doesn't fit the it's art. way inadequate. Art. Way inadequate. It's entropy to the nth degree. It separates us from, the, from those direct experiences. We've clothed everything in words that we hardly experience anything. We're calling things all the time things. We dismiss them by naming them, by putting them in categories of, of some things more valuable than others and so forth. And, and all of that, the development of language has created our separation from, from each other and from, and from the natural world. Yeah, or as hell, as, as, has accelerated it and, and sort of encoded it. Like building all these houses has separated us from cold, heat, discomfort, you know, all of those things that actually make you feel alive. You know, I used to live in a yurt. Uh, I was studying permaculture. Yeah, I, I wanted want to, to yeah. uh, you know, I wanted to learn how to grow more things, you know, because I grew up on a farm, but then I lived in big cities for 23 years. And, and the reason I wanted to live in a yurt is because I remember that John Muir story that he wrote about, um, I think he was in the Sierras. I don't remember what essay it was, but there was a storm and he, he, roped himself to a, a pine tree and he wrote out the storm wow. on the tree. And I thought, I want a piece of that, but <sighs> I am really chicken <laughs> and afraid of heights and all that. And I thought, okay, I'll live in a year because there was like an inch between me and the outside world. When the wind came along the green mountains, you could hear it and then it would hit it and go boom, you know, because it was circular, it would kind of, you know, go over it. But you were so, I was so aware of what was going on. Unfortunately, I could also hear the snowmobilers and the ATVs and all that kind of stuff. It was great when it was just coyotes and, yeah. and barred owls. But it's true, we are separated, we come inside, then it's like, oh, what's on TV? What's in the refrigerator? And, and I've often thought that if people knew that they were on this incredible ride on this planet, you know, right. and were speeding through space. If they could feel that, right. I think it would, I don't know, I think it would satisfy a lot of the longing. Well, it, it does, it evokes a religious sensibility. Tell us the story of your religious background. Well, my, both my grandfathers were preachers. They were. Yes. Hmm. Um, very different ones. My mother's father was a quite a well-known Presbyterian minister in Shaker Heights in Cleveland, Ohio. And Presbyterian, and he went to Union, mm -hmm. theological. Uh, graduated from Oberlin, went to Union, very prestigious position in this Presbyterian church in Ohio, and then went on and became the headmaster of Western Reserve Academy in mm -hmm. Hudson, Ohio. A person that people just loved and he had a tremendous education. And then my other grandfather, my father's poor Sicilian father, was a cobbler. He made shoes by hand for people in, in Sicily. But he became a Waldensian when he was in the army. His sergeant was a Waldensian and he got he converted. He really got religion. And he preached in Sicily, almost got killed. I'll bet. He, uh, Swimming you know, against imagine the being a Protestant in, in a place like Sicily. 
in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. In 1904, they came over. He, started, he got a job in a shoe factory in, uh, in the Boston area, Wakefield, Mass. is where my father grew up. And so uh, he wasn't by profession. He was never ordained, but he had a chapel in, uh, in Wakefield that, that people came to every Sunday and he preached. And, and what do the Waldensians... Believe. The, the Waldensians are, are evangelicals. They are? You know, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, early, early ones. They said, wait a minute, Peter Waldo mm-hmm. said, you know, that isn't, that isn't what the Bible says. Because I can read this. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. should have direct access. You know, we, we, don't need, we don't need an institution to stand between us and our relationship with God. And that was, you know, it was tremendous heresy. I don't think there were any other doctrinal differences, just the fact that we, we don't want to be controlled this, this way. Some of these dogmas are, don't fit with what we're reading here. Mm-hmm. And, the, and how he got his hands on the scriptures before Gutenberg, I, I, I don't know. but How Waldo did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it was yeah, just that simple. So it had lasted um, and, that long. And people had fallen. It was, it was a very thin and fragile ray of light that came through all the way through. Unfortunately, now when you use the word evangelical, it's, you know, it's like a dirty word now. Right. But, um, but it's actually we all need to be evangelical. I am a, an environmental evangelist. Yeah. So are you. Yeah. And, and many other things. And, and a cosmological one and, a, you know, a, and uh, just in generally all of this. What do you think of what is basically the old story the, that we needed redemption, yeah. right, et cetera, right, right. Um, you know, we're guilty, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. What well, do you think of that? Well, so much of it clearly was, and, and this, is not, this is not a newer or profound thought of mine, that, that so much of it uh, came from the marriage of church and state and the... And the convenience with which uh, with which the religious authorities with their control of mind and heart or their access to the mind and heart and the state's uh, controlling of the goods and services in the, in the physical realm uh, what a combination you know you've got absolute power right and uh, so if people are feeling, you know, and uh, it got so bad that, you know, you're paying indulgences for forgiveness and that kind of thing. Uh, when, when all of this was free, you know, it, it's all free. And, and they're making you pay for it with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> from, from some of these institutions, that even in, even even in recent centuries, from the Catholic tradition, many, many fantastically wonderful people and and initiatives have emerged from 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 that. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton, right, on right. and on. Thomas Berry, Mary Evelyn Tucker. You know, right. yeah. None of them, of course, none of those people I just mentioned were uh, remained. I, I think, in, but I think there were whatever they may have said. I'm sure deep in the heart they they were translating 
that old language into new language for themselves, even if they were aware that the people that they were talking to wouldn't be ready for that new language, and they wouldn't have a chance to prepare them to receive that new language. So I had these two grandparents, and a typical thing, my mother took me to the St. Stephen's across the street here. Um, the Episcopal when I, Church? When I was little, the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church, that was the closest she could find. There's no Presbyterian Church here. Mm -hmm. uh, tried to get my father to come. He was, he had been, as a, as a youth, he'd grown up with my grandfather, so he had this, you know, real basic sort of evangelical, you know, belief system. But he, which he lost in college, mm -hmm. um, and was pretty skeptical of, of a lot of it, you know, ever since. Although he was, you know, as so many people are, deeply spiritual, just not religious. So I had that that typical thing when I was seven, I was probably in my mid-teens. I, I became what I probably would, you'd call an atheist or an agnostic, or you know, I loved arguing with people who believed in God and and and. On and on, and then later, much later, uh, in my early 30s, I think out in California, I had a, a real religious experience with Christ. Really? Mm-hmm. And became very, I, I just had, uh, I was, yeah, I had this tremendous, uh, and, I th and I would call that an oceanic, I could translate that as, as a really a profound oceanic Experience. That's that's a word that uh, Dwayne Elgin uses to describe this. You know, and Ken Wilber too, to some extent, mm -hmm. in meditation. When you when you get to a place where, or someone else might call it, reaching enlightenment. It was it was an, an enlightenment kind of an of an experience where I felt just this incredible communion with all of the energies and light and everything. And and at that point, I was. Naming it Christ. Why did you name it that? Well, because that was, that was the influence I was I was. That was your frame with. of reference. That was my frame of reference. Yeah. yeah. What would you call it now? Well, Oceanic. Well, I would call it, or I could call it like Teilhard did the the cosmic Christ. Yeah. It's the cosmic Christ, which has nothing to do with. It, I don't say it has nothing to do with Jesus and his and his and the history of the of the New Testament. It has something to do with it, but but the cosmic Christ that Teilhard started talking about was really out there embracing the entire cosmos. This was not a, a local Christ that, that lived in Jerusalem and right. you know, said some fantastic things. Whether he said them or not, who yeah, cares? Yeah, how do we know? But how do who we know? Cares? I care. How do we know well, that well, he said them? Well, Schaefer, well, you know, people have done all these studies and Marcus Borg and the Jesus Project, Jesus Seminar, they did all that analysis. Right. They proved that he didn't say an awful lot of it, literally, but hey, you know, it meant enough to some people that they died for it. That's That means a lot. But people will die for stuff. I know they'll die for stuff. But <laughs> but these were people, yeah, but these people, but, but read what they wrote. I mean, some of what's in the Bible is really fantastic stuff. But don't you think that's true? And mm -hmm. I'm going to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. here because I've, I've not, I've never understood that concept of the cosmic Christ. You know, I've read Matthew mm -hmm, Fox and mm -hmm. stuff, and I'm thinking, okay, if it's cosmic, 
why do we have to bring it back to this to, to terminology, this name, to, this, terminology, to yeah. this name, okay. which is so loaded? No, it's a good question. Um, and, and you're right, it is loaded, and there is no need to, to yeah, do Yeah, let's call it something else. Yeah. You know, okay. I mean, we're free to move about the cabin. Let's call it something mm -hmm. else. Um, well. And, and as far as, you know, scripture... Um, you know, anyone who studied church history and you see how they got down to the canon. Have you ever read Eusebius? No. The church historian. He wrote like the first history of the of the church. And he was Constantine's uh, biographer. And he was at the court and stuff. He was, you know, one of these city boy, you know, kind of intellectuals uh, in, in the early mm. church. And he describes in the history of the church how they winnowed out. I mean, gospels were a cottage industry. Everyone wrote them, including women. And none of that made the cut, you know, because they were very concerned about orthodoxy. They were concerned about social control, uh, as Augustine was concerned about social yep. control. Yeah, so I mean, if the, the cosmic thing, the oceanic thing, I can understand right, that. Right. But as soon as somebody starts calling it Christ, man, I just I tune out. You know, I just head for the head for the hills. Well, that's maybe maybe there's you're you know you might be willing at some point to to take a little to dip your toe back in just enough to to try to connect with the person using it. So that the you know to to maybe deepen the 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 context for 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 both of you because language is it's way too simple a mode of communication to handle what we yes. what what, yes. we're, what we're asking it to do it does separate us language has has caused us to lose what you have when you don't have language. When you don't have language, yeah, th that doesn't go over true. really well in podcasts. No, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm gesturing toward out the window toward the tree, right? And 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 hoping that we can just see and experience tree right. without the name, without the word, you know. And and when you have that, like looking in your lover's eyes, you know, or I'm writing some pieces without words, but with singers. Huh. I think it's a fabulous idea, and it's working beautifully. But one thing, you don't have to fuss with the meaning of the text. It's just pure feeling and emoting. And so what would a polar bear sound like, or a snake, or... Just 
you know, it, in many ways, the whole problem from the beginning has been arrogance, hubris, and ingratitude. And why do you think that is? Uh, do you think there are particular in some, kind of pivotal types of thinking or eras of thinking? In some respects, you know, Genesis got it right. You think? No, no, no. No, no. And, <laughs> and, and, and only with respect to this, that the cerebral cortex is like the tree of life. Don't. God is supposed to have said, but from that tree, do not eat, because if you do, you will die. And that's exactly what's happened. We, we actually believe that, and we have behaved as if we are somehow so special. We, we have believed that we are God in the sense only of that we have permission to do whatever we want. We are omnipotent as far as, and omniscient, that there is something about humans that is fatal. There's a fatal flaw. And so evolution produced a a species that in less than 200,000 years has brought itself to the brink of self-destruction. Now that is weird. That's never happened before. There's never, there's no other species that takes more than its need, than it needs. Or soils its nest. Naked mole rats know better than that. But taking more than you need is really the bottom line mm-hmm. issue. Um, yeah, soiling the nest, of course, yeah. The laws that other species have to follow somehow don't apply to us. Right, or that we're, we're capable because, because of the tremendous potential. It's a, our lives are extremely distracting. Okay, so it is the ability to sit and wonder about things is, is in fact, it's a wonderful quality but it's also deadly because you can spend your whole life doing that, which many people have the luxury of doing because the heat's on, somebody's paying the bills, mm-hmm. or, or maybe they're working and paying the bills, but most mm-hmm. of their head is somewhere else like mine, mm-hmm. you know, in this music. Do I think about it? I, I am aware of, of, what it is that's sustaining me in this. I'm at the very, very rarefied pinnacle of civilization, being able to, I'm old enough to not have to work every day at a job that, you know, to to make a living. Right. So, you know, I get to do this incredible mental work all day long, but I have not lost touch with the fact that every period of 24 hours, when I think it back to yesterday at quarter of 12, about 30,000 children have died of starvation right. since then, and so on and so forth, right. not to belabor yeah. the point. But keeping your foot, your, your, a piece of your mind and soul and heart, however you want to call it, in, in that reality of, of being a part of a very fragile, beautiful, awesome, delicate balance of... of matter and energy that it's taken a very long time to produce and we have taken a very short time to really endanger it yep. and diminish it yep. diminish its potential even ironically at the same time that we have reached a maximum potential for global empathy with the internet 
very not Jeremy Rifkin, Empathic Civilization. Are you familiar with him a little bit? I'm familiar with him, yeah. Okay. It's, an, it's, it's an amazing book. and Empathic Civilization. Empathic Civilization. And he, the, the essence of it being that, that that irony that we have actually come to a point of, of, of great global empathy. Uh, but at the same time, the population is way too big. All of the trends are... Uh, are most of the trends are really terrifyingly. If you really look at it without a lot, without reserving a lot of hope, and and giving a lot of uh, giving a lot of leverage to this thing that most people will will talk about when they start getting too depressed, and that is, oh yes, but there's all this new consciousness arising all over, and mm -hmm. people are talking about, it, and and that's true. But if you look at the stats, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you just look at that. You want to enjoy this beautiful world at the same time. If you're aware of what's happening at all, there's this incredible grief. And, and of course, Joanna Macy does yeah. a lot of work with a lot that. A work with that. With, you know, how do you, how do you still love the world and try to be part of it and try to see your part mm -hmm. of it while you are experiencing the grief of yeah. what humans yeah. have wrought, yeah. you know? good enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when we were together, she was, she was like this, you know, just, you know, just in awe of, of the beauty and the wonder and the, and the, and the craziness and rising. Well, yeah. And this is a person who is a quintessential scientific scientist, yeah. uh, master, a cell biologist. And she, she can explain how membranes work and, and the greatest, I mean, it's just, it, but membranes are wonderful. I mean, they are magically amazing. In fact, no membrane does is, I mean, it's, it's a religious experience. And you, and your oratorio, does it still contain membrane? Yes. Yes, it does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Membranes yeah. made the cut. And I love, I love, uh, I love the distinction that membranes are boundaries of identity, mm -hmm. not of separation. Yeah. See, that's what we need. We, and that's the beauty of the cosmological principle that Swim and Barry talk about, which is uh, diversification, interiority, self-organization. And, and communion. communion. Okay. So things have to diversify in order to have any meaning because they have to develop an interiority in order to have an identity. But the identity has to be porous, not rigid. It has to, it has to allow things in and out so that their development can happen and so you can be exposed to those emergent things that make single cells into groups of cells that then eventually become organs that cooperate with trillions of other cells to do this, what mm -hmm. we're doing, which is so complex that it, it, there's no computer on earth that will ever be charts. able to even, no, no, no.
they, all this fantasy about artificial intelligence, so it's just nonsense. Thanks to Sam Gornacha for talking with me, and thank you for listening. The texts to the music you've heard uh, are Awakening by Brian Thomas Swim and Mary Evelyn Tucker, which is very short. It says, We are beings in whom the universe shivers in wonder at itself, the space where Earth dreams. The other sections are from Rilke's poem Gravity's Law, translated by the great Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. And that's longer, so you can find that in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.